Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This is episode 93 of the Garden DC podcast. We're talking with horticulturalist and garden podcaster Leslie Harris about all things pruning, and you'll definitely want to pay close attention to our discussion of the different types of hydrangeas and when to prune them. The plant profile is on snapdragons, and I'll share what I picked up at our seed exchange, as well as some upcoming events in the What's New section. This episode, we're joined by Leslie Harris. She's a certified horticulturist and the host of the Into the Garden with Leslie podcast. Welcome, Leslie. Well, thank you very much. It's very nice to chat with you, Kathy. Good to chat with you, too. And it's it always seems so like inside baseball to be talking to another podcaster, especially another garden podcaster, but kind of makes it fun. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be great guests for each other. I'm going to have you on soon. Great. And we're not too far away from each other. Uh, You are based in Charlottesville, Virginia, correct? Uh Uh-huh. But I grew up in Alexandria. Oh, so even closer. So let's talk a little bit about Leslie and how she got into horticulture and gardening and how you winded up down the road in Charlottesville. So we'll start off with baby Leslie. Were you born with chlorophyll in your veins? No, not in the very least. I was all about sports for years and years. Yeah. And I, the first time I got into gardening, I was 25 years old and we had a house. I had stopped working. I'd been a teacher and um, I just had had a baby and he slept all the time. And so, you know, I, I probably shouldn't have stopped working. I had a lot of energy and I was like, okay, I made the dinner. I paid the bills. Now what? And what's this garden thing? Let me, let me go see about this. And so I started digging and I, I was, I just have never been bored since. And so you're a certified horticulturist. That means you took courses. You actually went through the whole certification process. What made you do that and do a professional status? Well, um, that happened much later. <laughs> so definitely was not born with chlorophyll in my, in my blood. So what I did then was just continue teaching. Had another baby, coached basketball, played all kinds of sports myself, got serious about my tennis game. And then after my husband and I had worked at the same boys' school, and I also worked at the girls' school, Greenwich Academy, we worked at Brunswick in Greenwich, Connecticut for over 30 years. And we were sort of getting ready to retire and move back down to Charlottesville where we had met, but I wasn't ready to stop working. And he was thinking about retiring. So he said, hey, you know, your garden looks really good. You know, maybe you ought to start a business. And I said, oh, that sounds cool. That would be really cool. But, you know, I think that would be pretty physical. And then, so I'm in my early 50s at this stage. I'm like, I think you work kind of all day. And then, uh, you know, then you have to have paperwork. And he said, whoa, maybe I would do that. So we moved down here. Oh, actually, I started studying at the New York Botanical Garden courses there to try to get certified there. But those, so many of those courses were geared toward people who didn't have a day job. So I couldn't get my certification there. Moved back down here, opened my business, and it was successful. It was great. But uh, Jeffrey got a job with somebody else. So I fired him, actually, before he, I said, you can't <laughs> quit. I'm firing you. Uh, and I ran LH Gardens for seven years, and I just sold it six months ago. And it was so successful. And it was really unique, Kathy, in that we were not landscapers. We were gardeners. We were, I, there just aren't too many models like this. I took after a woman that I worked with up in Greenwich. I worked with her on Saturdays and in the afternoons before I left. And I said, I'm going to copy all your ideas, but don't worry about it because I'm opening my business 350 miles away. And she said, oh, okay. And she was great. Her name was Cora Burnham of Sanctuary Gardens. And she ran a really good business. And I took away things that I wanted to do and other things that I didn't. But what I really wanted to do was just the fun parts of gardening, like, you know, the containers and the annuals and the perennials and the fine hand pruning. So no mowing, no blowing, no big noises, and no, well, we did a couple ball and burlap plants at the beginning, and I'm like, yep, that's enough of that. We'll just be subcontracting landscapers. And so I really, I got into it. I was a very keen personal gardener for all those intervening 30 years. Uh, And then once I really had to do it, of course, you learn every day. I mean, I'm still learning every day with my podcast, constantly researching things that are not familiar to me. So I just love it. I think it's really fun gardening in all its aspects. 
Yeah, I think you found a really great niche there because that's a lot of what people ask me for referrals for is somebody who can do something above the level of the mow and blow service, but not a full landscape redesign. They just want maintenance or they want a zhuzh type of thing. Yeah. No, there's so many well-meaning landscapers who have not had the time or the inclination to study about individual plants and when they might want to be cut back and pruning techniques. And just to be able to do that was so much fun. And I learned a ton. I think that our hand pruning is what really kept us busy in winter that and on cold days we would mulch and the business goes on. I mean, my uh, manager of operations, her a young lady named um, Abby took over and it's Abigail Gardens and she has all of my clients and a few more new ones of hers. And it's, it's a really good business because so many people who want a gardener end up with just, Oh, that lady, you know, Leslie, okay. She can come on Thursday afternoons, but Oh wait, she sprained her ankle. Now she can't come. Whereas if it's a team and I had a crew of six women, um, sometimes I had the occasional men and they were great workers too, but it was usually, women. And so our job was to know the clients and know the garden and know the likes and know the dogs and the cats and close this gate and blah, blah, blah. And it was very much consistent. And so the clients and, and a high level of communication. So the clients ended up being very happy. Wow. Now I wish I could have hired you. <laughs> I'm tempted to hire Abigail Garden sometimes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like we can clone ourselves, but yeah, that's so needed um, and so necessary, especially somebody who can ID weeds from desired plants and won't be weed whacking everything down. Yeah. I mean, we did, we actually, we did um, have a weed whacker, but literally it was to maintain an edge of grass. You know how you can flip it on its side and just go, and so you've edged it with a shovel, but then you just trim up that grass and it looks so tidy when you've left. Um, it's a funny thing though, you know, <clears throat> now that I'm a personal gardener and I always was, of course, it's, I don't do the same things that I did in my client's gardens that I do in my garden, because sometimes the, the reason that they've hired me is because they want an extremely tidy garden. And that's not what I want. I want an extremely tidy garden. Sometimes if a tourist coming or this particular pot, you know, part that I look at all the time, but I want a more environmentally friendly garden. So my, you know, my mulches leaves, my sticks stay down, my perennials go, you know, until right now or March to get cut back. So um, it was interesting to learn both things, to be a steward of my land in my sort of wildish, messy way, and then to be very, very neat. And it's, and it's, and obviously no LH gardens as it existed and Abigail gardens as it exists now, never used any um, chemicals, no pesticides or herbicides, but still, you know, a little contrary to tidy leaves off of the bed when we all know that they're good for the bed, actually. Yeah. And it's a little bit different from, you know, how we might treat our own things as to how we treat others. And of course, if you want to have a neat, super neat appearance, it's going to have to be a little bit more clean up, a little bit less wildlife in your garden versus if you can tolerate a little more messiness, a little more of that wildness in your garden. Exactly. So I was just um, recording a, a piece on my podcast today and just talking about, because I had a question come in on winter cleanup and when to start and all that sort of thing. And um, I got this idea well, I actually just did it myself. It was my idea. And then I heard somebody talk about it on a, on another, yet another gardening podcast. Um, and they do this up at that, are you familiar with that park that's literally sitting on the East River? What's the name of that? Um, it's it's made out of those old, um, shoot, it's, it's, it's like, it's been, it's the Brooklyn, it's the Bro Brooklyn Bridge Park. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say in New York, and it's on yeah. these kind of like piers or, yes. or artificial um, structures. Exactly. And they had to bring in all the soil and it's incredibly um, environmentally friendly. And so they literally put up signs around which talk about bugs and, you know, you know, all the birds that come. Anyway, I, I heard them actually articulate what I do, which is I take a, you know, I have a big woodland chunk of my back garden and I don't, you know, I don't tidy it very well and I leave all the leaves. But if I'm having a tour come through, the Historic Garden Week tour was here last year, and I'm having some people this year too, I, I edge the edge of that bed, and I might put down mulch just on like the first foot or two. So it's like, um, they call it at the at the um, Brooklyn Botanical Garden, um, at the Brooklyn Bridge Garden, sorry, they call it a cue to care. Um, and so it's like, yeah, I'm gardening here. I'm just not gardening all the way through this bed because I want to leave it for the buggies. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a good indication is keeping the edges neat, but then the right. rest wild can be a little bit more tolerated in some neighborhoods where, you know, the uh, status quo has always been like super neat lawns um, shorn yeah. down. Yeah. And so we're going to dive into all things pruning in a minute, but I wanted to give you a second to talk about 
um, the transition from LH Gardens and garden maintenance to being a full-time garden communicator and podcaster. How has that been? It's been really good. I I don't miss the gardening because I have this, I'm on 0.8 acres here in um, Charlottesville, right next to the university. We got really lucky with a double lot and it's right at the base of Little Lewis Mountain, which is right near the university. So I, the reasons were many, one of which I knew that Abby was ready and I just was sort of, I wasn't over my clients, but I was over that, like that text, like, oh, one of the petunia died in the pot. And I'm like, oh God, what was the other cultivar of petunia and Mrs. Smith's pot? I must look that up now. I must source it. Oh no, I can't find it. You know, I was sort of over that part. Plus both Jeff's and my mother's are still alive and that's taking up a little bit of time. And plus we keep, Kathy, we keep having these grandchildren. <laughs> it's really fun. There was a fifth one born two weeks ago, and there's a sixth one coming next week. And so I'm like, I something's got to give here. And I had started the podcast because a local radio station called me up last February and said, Hey, you you know, we've heard you talk. I did some things for UVA when they were um, during COVID, when they were just like, We need something to do. Let's get her talking about her garden. I had a friend who worked in development there, and uh, so anyway, the local radio station called me up and said, Hey, do you want to do a radio show? And I said, Sure. And as long as I'm making audio files, I might as well send it out to be a podcast too. So I got some help with that. Um, and then I, you know what? I just started enjoying it, Kathy. I like talking about plants. I like the little research rabbit holes that I go down into. I like fully admitting that, you know what? I'm not going to research that. If you want to know more about that, maybe you listen to Kathy on her podcast. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's part of it too. You know, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And so I miss Abby and I miss that day to day, but I, I also am loving the flexibility of having a podcast and the travel and seeing, you know, and family and going to the gym and working in my garden. So it's, it's been a great transition. Thank you for asking. Yeah. And congratulations on those grandkids. It's going to be so much fun to have them in the garden with you too. Yeah. We started a little bit. I, we do little projects when I go up and visit them in Connecticut. It's fun. So turning our attention to pruning and mm -hmm. late winter, early spring is kind of that ideal window to get out there and, and do a lot of it. So what are you doing in your own home garden to start off with? Well, um, I take this time of year and, and for the last seven years, winter has been a great time for me because my business had slowed, you know, would slow down um, and I would send the crew off to do the pruning on the warm days and the, and the mulching on the, uh, we pretended to be landscapers on the cold days. Um, and I just took the time and, and I'm doing it this winter too, to just sort of look at every plant. And of course the ones that are dormant, the herbaceous perennials are not there to look at, or at least they're just a brown, you know, pile of slime. Um, so I'm not looking at those, but I'm looking at my many flowering shrubs and sort of examining them. And I'm really not afraid to prune things that are going to bloom like this spring. Um, and so here's why, for, for instance, you know, the two biggest groups, I would say, of those type of things would be the hydrangeas and the azaleas. And, you know, many people would say, well, don't do that. You're going to cut off this year's blooms. Mm -hmm. Well, for a couple of different types, and we can go over the, you know, some basic types of hydrangeas for two different types, for the paniculata and for the arborescence, you're not going to cut off this year's blooms. For azaleas and the other types of um, hydrangeas, you certainly are. But what I cut are the low branches where if that branch were to flower, I wouldn't see the flower. I wouldn't enjoy the flower. Um, if it were, if it's an interior, you know, branch, you know, all crowded and hairy, the, the shrub has become too crowded for me. I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to enjoy that. Of course, you, you know, you're going to prune no matter what the shrub is, um, the dead, diseased and crossing branches for the health of the plant. And of course, it's a great time to prune roses also. I, I sort of look at every plant and say, hey, what are you, what are you saying to me? What do you want to be taken away? And I will lift your load and I will add to my compost pile. <laughs> I like that. Lift your load. That's a great way to look at it. So when you start off pruning for the season, uh, what are the tools that you reach for first? What are your favorites? My very favorites are my secateurs, my hand pruners, which are, um, I use Felcos for years. And when I started doing this professionally, my thumb joint like grew three times the size of it. It was just like arthritis out the wazoo. I'm like, oh gosh, this is terrible. And literally a client of mine said, look at these cool new secateurs I got in the mail. He, he liked to fiddle around in his garden. Um, and they were tiny and lightweight and they're made by Okatsune, which is a Japanese company. And they were less than half the price of Felco's. And so I started with those and I've never looked back. They are awesome. A very lightweight, very lightweight. They fit my hand very well. I'm, I'm a fairly big person, but 
I don't have particularly big hands. And so I use the smallest type, which is the 101. These are bypass pruners. So that's on my hip all the time. And then I have good sharp loppers. And then I have a, a handsaw that I keep in my pocket also when it's this time of year. And if it's uh, if push comes to shove, I do have a tiny little battery powered chainsaw, which I try to be very careful with. Yeah, those kind of scare me. Yeah, they can be very scary. I try to like check it all around me. Can this got caught on anything? Hey, have you mm-hmm. heard, Kathy, about the little handheld uh, power saws, like battery powered saws? Yeah, I didn't know that they were like really up to the job, though. I had seen a few demos, but I wasn't that impressed. Okay. How do you find them? I haven't used one yet, but my girls came mm-hmm. home from a client about a month before I sold the company. And they said, oh, Mrs. So-and-so, let, let us use this new tool. It was so cool. We got to get one. Uh, we got to get one on the trucks. <laughs> And I'm like, hmm. I said, oh, describe this to me. And they did. And I said, um, please do not touch that. I will be selling this business in like 90 days. And um, or it was less at that point. And I said, and I do not have the, I do not have the um, insurance to cover you if an accident were to happen. So let's just not do that. And Abby mm-hmm. can make that decision later. They said that it was incredibly effectual and really fun to use. I have not mm-hmm. bought one for myself. Um, I kind of like the sawing motion, burning a few calories. So I'm not mm-hmm. terribly tempted, but they were all excited. I got to tell you. Well, it's good to know that there's new ones out there. And as you say, it's safety first. Obviously, you want to you know, wear some type of eye protection, maybe leather gloves, and have somebody out there spotting could also be a, a good thing if something is over your head or, or going to be coming down. You need a second person out there a lot of times. Yeah. And I've, um, because we live on a property with very old and wonderful trees at the base of this mountain, some of these uh, tulip poplars are 130 feet tall, two of them are. And my arborist is in charge of anything that I would have to climb on a ladder for, unless it was just like, okay, two steps up and I got my loppers, you know, loppers, you're really not going to get hurt. But I don't take my chainsaw anywhere up. I just use it like on the ground if I need it. And you had mentioned that your favorite pruners are always on your hip. And when you say that, do you mean in a holster, in your pocket? How are no, you carrying it? in a holster. I'm one of those nerdy nerds with um, okatsunes in one holster and then a solo knife right behind it. So I look like, yeah, a crazy person if I forget to take that belt off when I go to the supermarket. That's me. <laughs> but still, much safer than poking holes in your pocket or maybe cutting your leg. Yes, yes, exactly so. For sure. And then you said you always keep your tools very sharp, especially those loppers, which is a great way to be safer, of course, than using a dull blade. What do you use for sharpening? Um, I have a couple of different hand pruners that, depending on what's handy for me, um, that's code for I might have lost something. And so, but but generally it's a, a stone that I rub on it. What what do you use? I have a couple specialty sharpeners that come with the tools, like Corona Tools Line has their own sharpener that it's kind of like a, a blade inset that you kind of run your blade over. So I like oh, yeah. to use that a lot. And then I have a sharpening block. It kind of looks like a big piece of like a black, almost Velcro looking thing until you touch it. And then you feel it that has like that sharp diamond uh, grit to it. So I'll use those too. But I'll use that a lot, all, not just on my cutting tools, but also on my digging tools, like the tips of shovels and trowels to get a nice clean cut in the earth. How often do you do it on your shovels? Because I, I I would always clean up the tools from the you know from the business, and I did it this year from my tools uh, too. Mm-hmm. You know the wooden handles, I put linseed oil on on that kind of thing. But then I'm like, okay, but this is going to be ruined the first time I use them. How how often do you sharpen <laughs> shovels? Uh, sometimes I would do it once a month. Um, this last oh. year, I just did it at the beginning of the season because I wasn't. Mm-hmm planting that much new stuff and also the the soil wasn't so hard uh, because we had pretty wet year so if I start to feel like planting is a a labor or it starts to feel like it's really hard to dig that's when I'll be like oh yeah I forgot I can sharpen this and make it a little easier on myself yeah yeah no it definitely makes a difference the type of soil my soil has improved so much because I'm constantly composting and top dressing it so it's not the Virginia red clay that it that it once was about seven Mm -hmm. years ago and a couple other questions about care and hygiene of your tools. Do you use anything to sanitize between planting or pruning or between each plant, say, on a rose? Professionally, absolutely, I did. Um, it was funny, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was buying up those, um, you know, the uh, Clorox wipes. Um, mm-hmm, the swabs. And, yep. Yeah. And uh, we already had a pretty good supply of those, but my husband 
got on the bandwagon pretty fast. You know, if you all were having trouble finding bathroom tissue, um, it's because it was here in Charlottesville in my basement. Um, and also the Clorox wipes. So at the at you know, then it becomes apparent that you don't have to wipe everything down. That's really not how we get COVID. Um, but Abby has Abby inherited a lot of Clorox wipes and they do use them um and for those two um shrubs that you mentioned in between each rose, um, so as not to pass on rosette and then um or other you know, maladies. And then in between boxwoods, we had a really bad bout of the blight in 2018. We had about 30 extra inches of rain and it became, it was, it was bad. I mean, I was, I actually lost some clients who didn't think that I would understand the rules of the game about sanitation. And we were, you know, spraying ourselves with Clorox and blah, blah, blah. Um, so that has ebbed, you know, like it does ebbs and flows like this. It has a lot of correlations with COVID. It's kind of funny. People got really all excited because they didn't know at first. And then it's, it's it, of course, it's very serious um, COVID, maybe not boxwood blights, um, but there are ways to handle it. And so, you know, more information leads to better ways to deal with it. And so, yes, if I were to go back professionally, it's definitely um, cleaning your tools between each shrub. As a personal gardener, no, Kathy, I am a lazy girl and I haven't seen any signs of blight uh, or rosette here. So I just, I just keep going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like do as I say, not as I do type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So when you're first approaching a shrub to prune it, so we'll we'll say a typical maybe like a old fashioned wygela that you're looking at it. Um, what are your first decisions when you're looking at it? First decisions would be dead, diseased, and crossing. Um, and so like it, it's. I guess it's pretty hard to tell what's dead on a wajilla at this time of year, but if but if you give it a shake, you might be able to tell. Um, and then I actually don't have, I only have a couple of those. I want, They wouldn't have started to have their buds swell right now, but on many shrubs that you, you can tell, okay, that's a swelling bud and I know that's alive. And of course, you know, the great trick with your very sharp secateurs, you just, you know, take a little scrape off of the bark and you can tell whether something's alive. So if it's dead, off it goes. And then, like I said, for my own personal taste, I, I don't, I guess I'm a little bit of a neat nick in the garden. I don't like low floppy branches. I like a nice vase shape. So I will cut away um, the low things that are not going to make me happy anyway. I love to stuff my garden with plants, you know, natives on the bottom, such as heucheros or ferns. And so, um, and in the sun, maybe some, you know, I don't know, flux subulata or something like that. So that, so that there's always, so it's more like a green mulch. So I don't like the low shrub branches because I like the low plants. And the other thing, and this is a highly technical horticultural term that I'm sure you've heard of in all your years of study, you got to cut away the crazy bits, the crazies. <laughs> um, those are, you know, a plant has taken on this shape and you're like, okay, the majority of you ends at about three and a half feet. But then what is this thing that's coming off at a crazy angle? And it's like, you've actually, you're, you're rebelling here. You're, you're um, just not part of the program that I want. And so off with your head, sorry. Yeah, and I think other crazy bits, as you call it, would also be suckers or anything coming out below a growth node. So especially say on your roses that are grafted on there, Mm -hmm. you want to be cutting out anything below that grafted point. um, So you're not risking reversion of the plant. And then that's what I'm seeing a lot of in in some of my shrubs is suckering that is unwanted. So that's something you can attack at any time of year, but especially now once things are kind of bare and you can see it easier. Yeah, exactly. And you can actually, there's so little color competition, you can probably tell the difference in the the color of of a sucker versus the plant that you really want. There might be a slight difference in the uh, coloration of the bark. Yeah, for sure. I'm seeing that even today on my thundercloud plum tree, I'm seeing suckers that are a bright, almost burgundy red versus the darker burgundy red of that bark. So I'm like, oh, you got to (laughs) go. Yeah, you got to Off with your head. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. So you said you prefer a vase shape to a lot of your shrubs, and some of them are naturally more vase shaped, say like a witch hazel, and some you have to kind of train into that. Um, are you big on training into forms or topiaries or that sort of thing? Yes, I love to torture my plants. It's so fun. Here's the one that I really like the natural shape of. You know how azaleas grow in kind of a shelfy, like almost like shelves if it's a mature azalea, it's mm-hmm. like coming down and, and I, I would never touch that. I, I It kind of bums me out when I see azaleas pruned to a hedge or pruned to a ball. That just sort of makes me sad. But uh, that being said, on the contrary, I am very pleased to make lollipops out of lots of things. Uh, and I love, I have some espaliers going on. I've got, I had this photinia 
Um, a couple of examples walking around this property when I first started to garden here uh, seven years ago, there was this photinia that was blocking a view that I wanted. And I was, you know, those are great big non-natives. And I'm like, oh, off with your head. And then I'm like, oh, but wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. If I just get you to a height where I don't have to climb on a ladder to prune you, and then I give you, I take away all your lower branches, then you will be a very pleasant lollipop right here. And that's what he has done for me. Um, a couple of other things. There was a tiny little tulip poplar volunteer at the base of my largest tulip poplar. And I thought, well, isn't that ironic? Um, what a tiny little baby, but I didn't want it there. So it had three trunks growing up because people had tried to cut it before, I'm sure. And so I took those trunks and I braided them. Yes, I braided them <laughs> like a ponytail. Uh, and then I threw some wire on it, which I, um, after they kind of melded together, I'm sure there's a scientific word for that, but the bark kind of grows together. And so I took the wire off because that would be damaging ultimately. And I keep it to about uh, four feet. And every, every winter I say, hello, how are you doing? Let me just give you a little haircut there. Now you can stay. So um, it just depends on, if it, you know, if it's a plant that I don't want to be there, if they can play my little games, then they get to stay. Hmm, that sounds kind of cool. Like I, I've seen people braid, so to speak, plants into like a chair form or a ladder or, you know, it's really easy usually to do that to willows to kind of train them into almost garden furniture and then cut them off at the base and, and dry them that way. Oh, wouldn't that be fun? I know I'm not mm -hmm. that ambitious, but that is very cool. <laughs> it's a several years project, but something to try, maybe something for fun. So you threw out a big a vocabulary word there. And so I want to rewind that for our listeners. So espalier, um, let's define that and then maybe talk about some of the espalier projects that you have. Well, I believe that espalier started because back in medieval times, they had to have walled gardens. Um, I think there were rather large animals that would have wanted to eat possibly the apples you were growing, possibly the gardeners who were growing the apples. And so they needed their trees in order to get food to grow to not be so many dimensions. And so just up and against the wall. And of course, the wall produces heat also. So that's another great gardening technique. So the classic espalier is one that is just two-dimensional. So it grows high and somebody, you or maybe a nursery, has trained it to be a main stem with other bits coming out. And it can be quite geometrical and squared off and symmetrical. Or I've seen some lovely ones that are just sort of, you know, oh, a bending sort of main trunk with sort of bendy, wavish things coming off of it and wired to a wall. Um, so that is, that. that's what I have a, I have one that I bought as a small espalier that's an apple tree. And then I tried to espalier my own Magnolia grandiflora. Um, it was growing as a volunteer down by my compost pile. I'm like, come, 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 let's let's be over here on this wall and I will grow you. But it turns out those things, I was not tracking that they have a one big long taproot and I didn't get all of it. So that guy didn't die. But I did buy myself another little Magnolia grandiflora that had, um, so, you know, these are the types that want to get 50 feet tall, um, but I have them growing against the wall and I just go visit him, you know, once a week, not even once a month and say, okay, yeah, you can keep that branch, but you can't have this one. Um, and there's an easy way to, to get, you know, you can put it on a trellis or you can screw wires and sorry, you can screw things into your wall and use soft wires to, to just start to train it the way you want it to go. It's very amusing. Yeah, and so uh, such a great use of vertical and flat space, especially for small space and urban gardens. So, so, you know, a technique to think about when you really want that fruit tree, but you don't have the space for it. And that, that would be a great alternative. And like you said, the Magnolia Grandiflora, I definitely don't have space on my property for one, but I could look at maybe starting an espalier of one. Yeah, and then you could also, you know, there's cuter... I don't know if they're hardy up where you are because they're kind of borderline down here, but we're, we're close in climate. Um, there's the little little gem, which says it's dwarf, mm -hmm. but they can get to 20 feet. And then there's teddy bear, which I think really only gets to 12 or 15. Yep. Yep. That would be a perfect choice for that. So speaking of specific plants for pruning, um, you talked a little bit about hydrangeas in the beginning. So mm. that's always something that people struggle with. So let's go down the different families of hydrangeas and what you can prune now and what you need to be careful of. Okay. That's, um, I love to start this topic by just saying, hey, guess what, guys? Nobody has to prune any hydrangeas 
ever mm-hmm. if, you, if you don't want to. But here are a couple places where I would. And that's, of course, with dead disease, dead or disease branches. And, and then there's that look. Have you ever seen, Kathy, like, oh, I went to a graduation party and the, the mother of the grad had just really worked hard in her garden and everything looked beautiful, except it was, so now it's June, right? And um, her magnolia, they were macrophyllous, the big leaf, you know, the moth heads. And everything had leafed out. They weren't starting to bloom yet, but, you know, that, that leaf in itself was really pretty. And she had just not taken away the part, the sticks that stuck up above the plant and then just had not made it through the year. So we're looking at a pretty green bush with sticks on top. And I'm like, let's just have another glass of punch. Um, (laughs) I'm sure nobody else but you noticed. You were probably obsessed. You were probably like, I can't look anywhere else but at this hydrangea macrophylla. (laughs) That, That and bad grammar drive me crazy. And I said, just let it go. Let it go. Um, But anyway, so nobody has to prune any hydrangeas. And here are the types that you really shouldn't prune. And those, because they're about to flower. And unless they're, you know, it's a dead branch or a branch that's making you crazy, of course, you prune what you want to prune because it's your garden. But you will be pruning flowers, the spring's flowers, if you prune your oak leaf hydrangeas and your mop head or macrophylla hydrangeas and your climbing hydrangea, the pidiolaris, pidiolaris, however you say that. And your, what am I missing here? The serratas, the mountain hydrangeas. Mm-hmm. And so those four, yeah, maybe not so much. And if, if, it's, if the plant's too big and you're like, but wait, I, I am willing to sacrifice flowers because I can't see out of my window, then yes, of course you do. But a better time to, bloom, to prune those four types because they've gotten too big would be after they've flowered. So you've at least enjoyed some flowers, cut them and bring them indoors. But before it gets too late um, for where you live and where I live, I would say August, so that they have time to form new buds. So you won't miss a season of flower. Um, So for those four types, so let me repeat them. So it's the mop head, you know, the most common one, the, you know, unfortunately native to Asia that we all love, the mop head, the blues and the pinks, um, like the Nico blue is the classic type, the the macrophylla mop head the climbing hydrangea, the oak leaf hydrangea, and the serrata, which is the mountain mm-hmm. hydrangea. Those four, don't be pruning those right now. Like, hands off. But the other two, which you absolutely could do, but again, don't have to do, are also very popular, and they are our native uh, hydrangea arborescence. And the most common type that you might be growing in your garden is the uh, Annabelle. And then, of course, the hydrangea paniculata, which has those great panicle-shaped flowers. And there's so many great types, but some of the more common ones that our listeners might be familiar with would be little lime or limelight or vanilla strawberry or quickfire. So all those, you can prune those to a fairly well, and they will still flower for you this summer. So have at it if you want. (laughs) And so our next big category of should I prune this, how do I prune this? in categories is always clematis. So do you Mm. struggle with those? So much so that all I'm going to offer to your listeners is solace in the fact that a certified horticulturist is clueless on this topic. I know that there are three types. And if you can keep your type straight, if you go shopping and a a good nursery will indicate to you, do you have type one, type two, type three? And then you go to the Google machine and you look up the rules for pruning that. So unfortunately, and Boy, Kathy, if you have any tips, I'd love to hear them. But here's what I do do. I don't tolerate a lot of brown in the garden if it's in my face driving me crazy brown. So I know I I have two ways to help me improve my clematis. If I go to buy one, I make sure it's the type that you can prune all the way down to the ground and and you're going to be fine because there are some great choices in that category and that's the easiest one to deal with. If it's not that type and I'm not sure that I'm pruning away this year's flowers, but it's driving me crazy. Guess what? It's coming down anyway. So fewer flowers for me, but I've made myself happy in the meantime. What are some tips that you can give listeners since I've failed so miserably in this topic? <laughs> I would say, yeah, same thing. If it's brown, if it looks all, like it's got any of the fungal diseases, even uh-huh. if it says don't prune it now or it's not that category's time, take it out because yeah. it's just going to sit there and keep on giving you that, you know, the black moldy streaks or that take over the rest of the plant. And sometimes I find even if it's the I'm not supposed to prune you all the way back kind. If you cut them back every three to five years, like a really hard prune back, they regenerate pretty well. They they come back kind of gangbusters after that. So it's kind of like they can take a lot more abuse um, than the books will say. You know, they almost act like they're prima donnas or something. And also I would say for the 
you know, consumer, the gardener who's going to go to a local garden center, many of the clematis you see for sale now have been bred to be container grown or to be small. Um, so they're not these huge rangy plants that you're going to have to constantly be pruning. So your job is more to guide them onto, say, a trellis to secure them or maybe drape them over another shrub or let them wind through something than having to do that annual constant pruning to them. Those are really good tips. And if you've, just another one, if you've gotten yourself to a point where, no, oh my gosh, this is an arbor and I wanted it to cover my arbor, or you really wanted a more uh, exuberant look with your clematis and you've chosen poorly, all is not lost because you could always add a couple of flowering annual vines, such as moonflower or um, the uh, hyacinthine. And they could add to the, they're going to, they're going to flower probably a little bit later. Clematis mm-hmm. can flower later in summer, but they, they'll have their big burst, you know, especially if you're, you're cheapy like I am and you just use the seeds, they're going to have, they're going to really bring you joy in August, September, even into October. And they'll cover that trellis. No worries. And that's a great advice because twinning almost of vines where you put an annual with a perennial gets you a lot longer season of bloom. And then, you know, if one of them is a little more disappointing and not as floriferous as the other, you got that fill-in effect. So yeah, that's always a good thing to do. And they get to climb on each other and and support each other because sometimes one little clematis can look a little spindly, right? Yeah, it really can. So I always add the other things. So let's talk about the actual cuts we do in pruning. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, because we're talking on a podcast, we're going to have to describe it a little bit. But I do find it's a common mistake with beginning gardeners that they will be a little too conservative and they will prune like an inch out, you know, from a stem or from a trunk. So you'll have what I call these little thumbs or these little burrs sticking out all over. Yeah. So you want to prune to make the plant happy, but you also want to make yourself happy, particularly if it's a plant that you're looking at all the time. When I was training my crew members to prune properly for for clients, uh, we talked about the crotch pruning. So you basically, you take, you know, like, okay, this this branch is too long. I have it in my left hand. I'm going to follow it with my right hand. I'm already back down to a good crotch that's interior. And I'm going to make my cut near that crotch. And if I don't follow it to the interior of the plant. If I make my cut so that it's on the outside of the plant, I, the client, I can see that cut. Um, and so if you're not very exact with that cut, it, it might look ugly. We used to call them li- like leaving candlesticks. So a, cr- <laughs> a crotch cut makes it so, all right, you know, the main stem goes not into this thing that I just took away, but into this other one that's on a diagonal. So it looks a lot more natural. Um, but if you if you don't cut near the crotch and you leave something two or three inches long that's just sitting there, it's like, uh, you need to go back. And I was always very nice with the people I was training, but okay, so let's step back and look at that. And do you see all these candlesticks poking out at us? We need to make those disappear. And it just takes a little bit more time. Of course, um, there are a couple of shrubs where you could just not take as much care. And one of those would be the azalea. You can make a, you know, what's called a heading cut there. You don't have to really look for that crotch. You don't have to really look for that node in order to make a, a decent cut there. It might not look good in the moment that you're doing it, but you can go pretty hard because it will grow back from basically wherever you cut it. And boxwoods are the same way. So that's a good thing to know that you don't have to be so gentle unless you want to walk away with something that looks Primo, if you're willing to wait for it, you can go a little faster and not have to search for that crotch in those two plants, the azalea and the boxwood. Can you think of any others like that? Mm -hmm. I think that also applies a little bit to roses as well. And I was going to say that also brings us to thinning. So Mm. uh, pruning for thinning or opening up a plant um, and getting some oxygen and aeration in there for disease prevention is kind of a great reason for pruning Mm -hmm. uh, other than just the aesthetic or wanting to shape it or keep control it for size. So that's definitely a, a good advice for that. Yeah, and, and for boxwood, is particularly if you're worried about the blight, air circulation does ha- does help to, to keep that at bay. And so literally poking holes, we would, you know, when I would tell the girls to go, oh, go to Mrs. Smith, and I'd give them a job list, and it was, the term was punch holes in these boxwoods. And so when you're finished, it looks, well, if you were to just punch one hole, it would look like, oh, what happened there? But when you're finished, it's like, it's a pattern of holes and not great gaping airy holes, but real, a, a real different look than when you started where it's just leaf, 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 leaf. You've created, um, you've created these holes 
in a sort of a systematic and um, hopefully aesthetically pleasing way so that the air is getting good, good air circulation, so that the plant is getting good air circulation. And so that the growth of the plant on the outside, which is you know, what happens when you shear a plant on the outside time after time after time, the new growth comes only on the outside. So there is no interior growth. So the plant is less healthy. And that's why you want to reach in and poke those holes and get that air circulating on the inside. And I'm, and I'm imagining somebody listening to this and actually punching a hole in a shrub. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So instead, yep. what you want to do is you want to take, so you're looking at a boxwood, say it's about three or four feet tall, and it's a little misshapen and you want to print it for that reason, or you just know it's really tight. Like if you take your fingers and say, hey, 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 what's going on on the inside of this? And there's only green growth on the last three or four inches of that shrub. And there's just, they're just sticks on the inside. That's when you know you need to punch holes. So how do you punch the hole? You don't punch anything. Um, grab one of the longer branches that can be pretty big um, with your left hand and go back at least halfway or at least maybe a third up the branch and just cut. And again, with a boxwood, you don't have to look for a node. You don't have to look for a crotch. Have you ever heard, Kathy, of people just breaking off boxwood branches to prune them? Yeah, I was going to bring that up under finger pruning. So mm. I will see people, especially with those brittle type shrubs like azaleas, like boxwood, you can, you know, not use pruners and just go in there and snap with your fingers. And I've heard some people really um, disagree with that sort of strategy, because if you break it off with your with your hand, then it's not a clean cut. And clean cuts are a better practice for just keeping disease away. But honestly, in a hurry, I've done that a lot, and I've never seen any ill effects. Shh, don't tell the people who really think that's bad. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's kind of a thing of experience. So you get experience for which shrubs and trees in your garden are very, very brittle that you can literally finger prune very easily mm -hmm. um, and pick out anything dead or just snap it off and it comes off cleanly versus the ones that you snap it and you pull half the bark down the stem of the tree and, and you know you've made a big error in that case. Yeah, the, that tree is not going to be so happy with you. And and just the, um, we're, we're talking about pruning so much and some people it's funny, it's funny, I was just in Florida for a month and they, they referred, they have so many huge hedges down there and they refer to it as trimming um, and not, I think of pruning as pruning, like with your hand pruners, but then there's this thing of shearing and I would never say trimming, but whatever, that's just semantics. Shearing is when you want to shape something. So you've take, you're taking your shears and just say, okay, I want you to be a tighter lollipop, uh, lollipop or I want you, you know, you can, you can make topiary out of some wonderful things and take a shears and do that. Right now is not a great time to shear because uh, lots of plants don't react really well. Some, some would be fine, but when you shear, you're not you're cutting individual leaves sometimes right across that leaf. And then if you have a really cold night, that leaf might say, oh, I didn't like being cut right in the middle of myself and I'm going to turn brown. So it's not a great look. It's not a great time of year to shear, but it is a great time of year to prune individual branches. And there's also that philosophy of pruning of wherever you cut, that is where the plant is going to grow. Like you right. are basically sending signals down to the plant's brain, so to speak, uh, the hormones in the plant to say, where I just cut you is say where, you know, a deer or prehistoric animal or uh, what have you came along and bit you off. So that's where I need to send my new growth. So that's something to really keep in mind when you're pruning that you're telling the plant, this is where I want you to grow again. And that can be a, a real, you know, philosophy or a real way of shaping a plant or guiding it in the future. And I think that's particularly important information when you're rose pruning. Because, you know, roses, again, want that air circulation. They want to be, you know, not a thick, crowded thing. So uh, when I would train my, my gardeners and, you know, I do this, my, I, I do do this myself. I do, instead of just talking this talk, I walk this walk. Um, my roses are pretty pathetic. They don't get any extra care. And I, I just have them kind of far away from the house so that I'm not reminded about uh, how mildewed they are. Um, but I can't, but, you know, mildew doesn't keep them from flowering. You know, they're not that mildewed. So I, so I do enjoy them. Anyway, I do prune them in winter, and I always look for a node that's facing outside, not inside of the shrub, so that the branch that you just talked about that is signaled to grow will grow outside and not inside to be crowded. And so I get a wider, uh, hopefully more floriferous and a healthier rose that way. Yeah, and to describe that outward-facing node or the inward-facing node, so you kind of can rub, run your hand along a stem and feel those bumps, those 
growth bumps. And then when you find one that's kind of facing on the outside of a shrub, that's the one you want to cut right above. Exactly. And you can, you should be able to see them actually. I mean, they're beginning mm-hmm. to swell down here. So, yeah. and, and a good uh, rule of thumb is just to cut about a centimeter above. If you cut too far above, then you get that candlestick dead thing that what you've mm-hmm. left behind will turn brown and never look pretty. It's not tragic. The plant won't die or anything. Uh, if you plant it, if you cut too close to the new, to the node, um, that node might say, you know what, you actually damaged me and the next node down will have to be the one that grows and not me. So again, not as beautiful look. So about a centimeter above it at an angle is a really good rule of thumb. To, and then yes, it's, it's so that you are looking at a bud that is facing away from the center of the plant. Yeah, and it's much more noticeable and easy on roses because they're almost like a bright red yeah. against the bark at this time of year. Other shrubs, they kind of hide some of those growth growth nuts fr- from you. They can kind of be like, hmm, until you really feel along it, it's really hard to find them. Yeah, that's that's very true. You can see them very easily on macrophylla hydrangeas. You know, those those buds are mm-hmm. like as big as your pinky thumbnail or pinky uh, pinky nail, and they're you know they're really fat, and they will get fatter in the next month. But for instance, on a different type of hydrangea, you're like, oh, I see a lot of bark. I'm not quite sure what's happening here. <laughs> you can see them if you look. Yeah, hard. I was gonna, I was gonna say the smooth hydrangea. That's probably the case where you really have to like run your hand along that to stem to find those. Yes, yes, that's probably true. And you can always, if you're not sure, you can always just use. You know, it's easy to find a crotch. That's where two branches come together, and you can cut there. Great advice. So any other pruning plant families that people have a lot of trouble with that uh, you get a lot of questions about? Um, I would say hydrangeas are the biggest one. Let's mm-hmm. see. Um, oh, I was just going to say when we were talking about um, a little while ago, we were talking about some of the plants I've tortured in this particular yard. Um, and just a, a kind of a trick that I've come to, and I think it's useful for a lot when I go... Part of my business now is I do consulting as opposed to actually gardening. I go, I go talk to people about their gardens and what they might want to do and, you know, problem plants. And I do some designs, but mostly just, you could have somebody design this or you could have somebody do this. It's very satisfying. You walk away. Um, anyway, the idea of a plant that is too big for a space and it's not making you happy, of course you can remove it, but that's going to take a lot of um, sweat and or hiring somebody else. So, for example, when I first moved into my house, there were these great big ilex, you know, the, um, what do you call those things? They were the cronata ilex. So, is there a common uh, term for those, the cronata? trying to think of a different holly type. Yeah, it's a Japanese holly that looks like a boxwood. But if you upon closer look, it has serrated edges and alternate leaf growth. So, you know, and it doesn't smell like a boxwood. So, you're like, okay. Mm-hmm. So, Japanese holly, yeah. sometimes box leaf holly. Yeah, I think most people call yeah. them Japanese holly. But anyway, so mm-hmm. I they were making me quite unhappy, and I considered digging them out. And again, I considered my back and my wallet. So I thought, okay, how about this? Um, I don't like them, and yet they probably have a very successful root system because they've sent up a great big plant that is too big for me in this spot. So I will cut them down to the ground. And if they survive that form of torture, they are welcome to play in my garden because you know, they, they've, they've survived it. And so cutting something down like a real rejuvenation pruning is a very effective way to almost get a new plant without shopping. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's some great advice because yeah, if it's completely been ignored or overgrown at space, and then you get, you know, kind of that whole rebirth, like literally a rebirth of that plant and get to enjoy it in that juvenile phase. And probably it will be airier, healthier, maybe even more floriferous, more flowering for you, depending on how like overgrown or overmature it was. Yeah. As you indicated before, when you prune a plant, you're telling it to grow. And so, and yet, and yet, if you have something in your yard that you're worried about, like, wow, I would never want to lose this thing. It was grandma's lilac or whatever it is. Um, maybe maybe you're more careful in that situation. And just keep in mind, a good rule of thumb is if you want to be cautious about pruning a tree or a shrub, taking away at any one time a more than a third of its growth is probably uh, not very cautious. So if you want to be cautious, think, okay, a third away. And so we've had some, I've had some clients over the years that, uh, for instance, needed rejuvenation pruning on boxwoods that were so big that they were covering their windows. 
but they were also so badly, they were in such bad shape that if you prune them a foot down, all you would see were sticks because you, you know, they'd been sheared. And so the only growth on those shrubs, which were decently healthy, was on the outside. Nobody wants to look at shrubs, for, uh, at sticks for a year. So you could do you know, you could do a little bit at a time. And, and finally, because, you know, that once you get it down to close to sticks with a few green tips, then that air and light is getting into the interior of that shrub, no matter what it is, and it is growing much more healthy. And then you could probably do a bigger cut the next year. So there are lots of things to think about when you're, when you're just dealing with the health of a, you know, normal plant, just like, oh, you know, I should probably prune this because, well, wait, should I prune this? <laughs> And remember that you don't have to in a lot of cases. But if it's something way too big, that rejuvenation pruning, like literally, wow, I could be killing you. I'm pruning you so hard. But let's just see if I did, because if I didn't, I welcome you back to the garden. Great advice. And so true that um, sometimes we don't need to prune. (laughs) That's a hard message to get out to a lot of people that are just habitual pruners, that they just kind of like the zen of it, right? And I always say, buy some bonsai (laughs) and and go at that. But not everything needs pruning. You know, right plant, right place. If the plant uh, is happy where it is and healthy, it probably doesn't need pruning. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, unless it really bothers you or you can't see out of your window, Oh, another thing that I've come to uh, later in life is that I have some plants in my yard. Oh, for instance, back to magnolias. I have two teddy bear magnolias that are on either side of my front porch, which is, well, let's see, must be about seven and a half feet tall. Those two magnolias will never get any taller than seven. It must be seven tall, seven feet tall, because I can reach the top of them. I'm about six, I'm almost six feet tall, so I can reach the top of them. I'm never going to let them get tall enough so that I need to drag the ladder out to prune them. (laughs) And I've done that with a lot of plants. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get on the ladder one more time to get it down to this height. And then after that, it's a yearly haircut so that I never have to get on a ladder again for you. Um, Because I like you at the size and I don't like ladders in my 60s. So that's something to think about too. Yeah. Anything we can do to stay off a ladder is a good idea. (laughs) You just have to keep on top of it and make sure you don't forget that one year you get busy or you're doing a lot of traveling and then miss out and then it gets it gets above that height again. And that's you. maybe when you get some landscaper to come in or your extremely tall son-in-law named Mateo who's got long arms and yeah, <laughs> you can get help. <laughs> Great. So how can listeners get in touch with you, Leslie? So I have a good website and I'm writing a blog for each podcast and I'm going to start writing um, more blogs than that. Website is lhgardens.com and I'm active on Instagram, um, starting to be active on Facebook, although it scares me, but I'm trying. Um, I send things to Facebook. I don't often go there. If you want to communicate with me on social media, it's very easy on Instagram and I am Leslie Harris LH. And I'm starting a very small and so far quite lame YouTube and that is Into the Garden with Leslie. But I hope for improvement. Uh, So come check that out. Maybe not right away. Give me a couple months to get that going. (laughs) Thanks for sharing, Leslie. Yeah, I think pruning can be an art. It's a science. And there's a lot we need to consider, a lot of decision making. And I think we've only touched the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, on this uh, short episode. So we'll have to have you back on again, Leslie. That would be fun. But this is why, Kathy, that gardeners would never be replaced by robots. There's just too much to consider. Mm -hmm. Thank you again, Leslie. Thanks, Kathy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Snapdragon plant profile. Snapdragon, Antirhina magus, are a cool season annual, sometimes a tender perennial, like pansies and violas that bloom in the shoulder seasons, early spring and late fall. They stop blooming through the coldest part of the winter, but often hold on to their green foliage for us here in the mid-Atlantic. They are hardy to USDA zones 7 to 10. Snapdragons make excellent container plants and their flowers are available in a wide range of colors from creamy whites, oranges and yellows to rosy pinks and purples. They also come in a variety of heights from dwarf to mounding or trailing to quite tall. 
The common name snapdragon originates from the flower's reaction to having their throats squeezed, which causes the mouth of the flower to snap open like a dragon. They are native to the Mediterranean region, and the fragrant flowers are attractive to pollinators, including hummingbirds, bumblebees, and other large bees. The flowers have a long vase life, making them an excellent cut flower choice as well. Snapdragons are low care, just plant them in a sunny spot and make sure they do not entirely dry out. Mulching, fertilizing, and regular snipping off of their spent blossoms can help them stay healthy and more floriferous. And oh yeah, they're deer resistant. That makes them pretty useful among other cool season annuals that are practically deer and rabbit candy. So if you have a bare spot in a better container in the cooler gardening months, think about adding snapdragons. Snapdragon, you can grow that. What's new this week? Well, this episode is going out a few hours later than we usually post it because we spent the day hosting the Washington Gardener Seed Exchange at Brookside Gardens. And while I was there, I picked up some interesting seeds that I'm gonna be starting this year in the garden, including the butterfly pea vine, which I'm super excited about. And I gave away cucamelon or Mexican sour gherkin, as it's sometimes called, seeds. We also had seed peanuts. We had many different colors of zinnias, and I'm gonna try out a few of those. And of course, lots of different marigolds and other annuals came in the door and went right back out. And they're gonna be in everybody's garden this spring and summer. I can't wait to see those. So I also wanted to share that our February 2022 issue of Washington Gardener Magazine is out and posted online. You can find that at washingtongardener.blogspot.com. In this issue are our 17 award-winning garden photos, so definitely check those out. There are some stunning images by area photographers and gardeners. We also have a story on carrots, the essential vegetable, winter aconite plant profile, native Virginia water leaf, why you should use gray water, and a profile of Deborah Dramby. She's a shepherd of 56 hooves, and you will fall in love with her goat herd. In upcoming events, I wanted to call your attention to the Ikebana International Chapter Number 1 is having a luncheon and demonstration on Saturday, March 26th at 10 a.m. at the Columbia Country Club in Chevy Chase, Maryland. My own garden club, Silver Spring Garden Club, will be meeting back in person at Brookside Gardens on the third Monday evenings of April, May, and June. And we welcome guests to our meeting, so please check out silverspringgardenclub.com and we will be posting those meeting details in upcoming months. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jentz and Terry Spite, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space, while also making Making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. The Urban Garden, 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City, comes out this spring. You can pre-order it now at Amazon.com and Bookshop.org. Celebrate spring with four exciting gardening books and their authors. This free online party takes place on Thursday, March 24th at 7 p.m. Eastern. It is sponsored by National Garden Bureau and Garden Communicators. During this live webinar, you'll get to virtually meet the four authors and learn some of their best gardening tips. 
Those authors are Sean and Allison McManus, Christy Wilhelmy, Raphael Delalo, and Tony Gatoni. Attendees will also have a chance to win one of three gardening giveaways. Register for this free webinar at ngb.org, select the Education tab, and scroll down to Webinars. See you there. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.